Welcome to the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan Eidick, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that really care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today, we're talking to Jason Svitze. He has been able to make a lot of change and amplify different voices in many ways throughout his career. Before we get into the conversation, my name is Mariah Samji. I am the Executive Director at IDEA, the Infill Development and Edmonton Association, and this is Ryan. Hi, I'm an urban planner that likes to think and talk about city building issues. Now, this is a fairly technical episode, so here's a few things you need to know about before diving in. The first is we talk a lot about the city plan. Basically, it sets a vision for the city of Edmonton at what it's going to look like and feel like for residents at 2 million people. So it then supports that vision by setting actionable policy and strategic directions to help achieve that goal. It's basically a municipal development plan, so a land use plan for the city, but on steroids. It's a very unique and bold step that combines all sorts of plans that are typically separate. So land use, transportation, environmental, social, and economics, and it rolls it into one document to be used by city builders around Edmonton. District planning is the next level, so it's an implementation tool for the city plan. One of the big goals of city plan is to create 15-minute neighborhoods, which basically means that you have everything you need, so access to a variety of housing, retail, transit, parks, everything, within a 15-minute travel time. So what district planning does is it takes that vision and creates a more detailed version of the city plan, so where different land uses go, different intensities, um, and how they're focused in any given district or neighborhood and how people are getting around, where their parks are, how it's used, stuff like that. This all gets implemented through more detailed policy that looks at specific districts and neighborhoods rather than the entire city. And lastly, the zoning bylaw. It's the meat and potato set of policy that regulates individual parcels of land rather than neighborhoods or the city. So the fun part of all this is that all these plans and regulations have to work with each other. So that means that all policy has to work towards that overall vision that's established at the city plan level. So think of it as a pyramid. The top of the pyramid is the city plan. It's very high level, very loose in terms of policy. And at the base is the zoning bylaw, very specific policy, individual sites, and that type of thing. You really need a strong base to support the massive vision of the city plan. So that's why it looks like a pyramid. Does that all make sense? Perfect. Now let's talk to somebody shaping our city. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Jason. Uh, I am so honored to have you a part of this conversation. Uh, you were one of the first people that Ryan and I wanted to tap on the shoulder to be a part of these conversations and building out in development our fantastic new podcast talking about how Canadian cities grow up. So uh, to all those listening out, listening today, Jason Savixe is an urban planner and a PhD candidate who convenes dialogue around pressing urban issues. He helps to build safe spaces that are resilient, equitable, and policy through his work at the Downtown Winnipeg Biz, HTFC Planning and Design, and the City of Edmonton. This is the bio that he helped me create, but it does not do him justice. Uh, I know Ryan has a bunch to add in, but also I have worked with him on many different projects, which we'll get into later in this episode. 
Likewise, well, I've been really excited about this conversation and I know that we've had some pre-conversations to get to know one another and I've been really grateful to, to work with Raya through the Info Roadmap and the work at the city and of course Ryan and I went to the same university here in Winnipeg, Manitoba and so there's a lot of connections and routes back home to Winnipeg but really excited about the conversation that's going to emerge over the, over the next hour. I'm sure we could talk for hours uh, but there's a finite amount of time but really excited to, to have that conversation with you. Yeah, and Mariah alluded to it, and I, I want to make sure that the introduction does you the fullest of justices, Jason. So this is more for Mariah's uh, knowledge as well. So the you kind of glossed over it, the director of the downtown Winnipeg biz and uh, working at HF, HTFC in Winnipeg. Now, for those that aren't from Winnipeg, those are like two of the most... Uh, desirable jobs that you could get as planning students from the University of Manitoba. So Jason secured both of them at, at one point or another. So that's awesome. Uh, Jason, you're also a writer for the Winnipeg Free Press. You've done work for the uh, Institute for Research on Public Policy, uh, written for Plan Canada, which is the, uh, the planning magazine at the national level, Canadian architect. You serve on the board for the Canadian Institute of Planners Student Trust Fund. You've previously served on boards for the Win Winnipeg's Poverty Reduction Council Task Task Force, Food Matters Manitoba, uh, the Wazakana Fund, Graffiti Art Programming. You have over 5,000 followers on Twitter. You've won two CIP awards, the Canadian Institute of Planning. Uh, you've been named the Canadian Public Relations Society's Communicator of the Year in 2014. You've named and you were named CBC Manitoba's Future 40 back in 2015, which out of 195 nominations, 40 got selected and highlighted making positive impacts in the community. Jason, did I capture everything there? <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, I just I just really enjoy um, being a city planner. I love being able to be somebody that lives in um, the city that. Uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. I also love being a guest and sort of a fledgling uh, Edmontonian. I think I think you can kind of say that you're an Edmontonian after a couple of years. Um, so I think that like really the big focus for me is just building great cities, and it's not about the titles or the those types of boards and whatnot. It's about working with with others and convening great conversations. So I really appreciate the the great introduction, uh, but definitely not necessary. And I'm sure you folks have have the, the wide repertoire of, of different great experiences too. But thank you for that. Well, we're just making sure we're <laughs> capturing you and also wondering where your free time, if any, goes. Uh, I, I use most of my, my free time to create TikTok dances. That is incredible. No, and you know, as, as and, you get older, it takes a longer period of time to learn how, how to do those dances. Oh, I saw on Twitter one of your TikTok dances. And oh my gosh, can you, like, you are an amazing dancer. Flexibility is crazy. No. I was like, we need to go stop, hang out. <laughs> stop, stop, stop. No. As you get older, the flexibility is not once what it once was, but uh trying to trying to represent for for those who are aging gracefully in our cities and communities. But yeah, what what would take like I think a young millennial like ten minutes to learn? Like it would take like I don't know. For me at least, it will take me like a good week to learn. So I get really excited when I when I can figure out how to do it. But I do think TikTok and different social media outlets become, I think, a really important conversation for city building because obviously there's like this growing body of younger folks who are going to be taking over our communities and hopefully leading our cities and, and how they're planned. 
And I think something that we haven't really thought about is how planners can engage with different audiences, especially younger people. And so, you know, some of my favorite TikToks to follow, I know it seems like not connected to city planning, but like a lot of politicians and leaders are using it as a way to sort of engage with, you know, a segment of the population trying to make, um, trying to make policy more relevant, trying to make it resonate. So Jagmeet Singh is one of my favorite uh, and where, you know, he uses it to, to rally and mobilize no matter or regardless your political stripe it's it's engaging it's entertaining it, it it's making things um tick and sort of connect with others so yeah i'm happy to do a TikTok with the, with the two of you in person God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need a lot more practice than uh, than you two for sure so maybe i'll leave that to the two of you selfishly i brought you here today to talk about uh the gba plus an equity toolkit um <laughs> so I, i'm going to tie it into that um and for those who don't know exactly what I'm talking about, because they may have seen you wear other hats uh, working at the city of Edmonton with Missing Middle and City Plan and Zoning Bylaw, can you talk a little bit about what is the GBA Plus and Equity Toolkit? Where did it start? What does it yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Mariah. And uh, yeah, so this has been already a great start to the conversation. And um, so just a little bit about um, sort of how I center the concept of equity for me. I would say that I'm not um, an expert on equity. I would say that I'm an expert to my own lived experience. Um, and so equity for me is still this ongoing process and, and listening, learning and reflection. Um, so just to sort of center like my own experience, I am a queer person of color. I grew up in sort of the more poor neighborhood in Winnipeg in the North End. And so that really drives my thinking about um, different types of people and their contributions and their experiences to the city. And, and generally, my sort of inclination is to try to amplify those types of voices who've been historically ignored or um, not invited to participate in typical planning conversations. And so that really centers my practice and also centers sort of the priority when I think about engagement design. Um, so with that said, I was asked just back in September of 2020, so not so long ago, I guess basically a year ago, um, I was working on the info roadmap, working on the Miss Middle Design competition with, uh, with you folks and with IDEA, um, and working through a lot of the policy and regulatory conversations around intensification. Um, but on the side of my desk, as you know, everyone was working from home and you know, there was less and less resources at the city, um, my director sort of asked me, like, you know, you talk a lot about equity in public space. You think you talk a lot about, you know, queer experiences and, and members of the 2S LGBTQ plus community and, and how, you know, they experience the city in their built form and been doing a lot of research on sort of the um, accessibility of housing for, for members of the queer community uh, and their experience throughout um, different communities. And so they reached out to me to say, you know, there's this opportunity to work on the zoning bylaw project um, to specifically think through how zoning itself could could apply in a GBA plus and equity lens. My first question, my first sort of comment was, well, you know, I don't really know much about zoning. It's not to say that I don't think zoning is important. I just didn't think it was for me. I thought I saw it fairly as a pretty technical exercise of figuring out the height, the setbacks, calculations. I might be a science grad, but I'm not very good at math. So um, I never really saw that is sort of within my trajectory. But as we know, you know, during COVID, we started to see some really interesting conversations emerge, especially around race, around, um, you know, activism. Um, and we saw obviously Black Lives Matter across the globe 
people taking over the street and insurgents, you know, happening. And that really, I think, and we also heard how zoning has, has created um, historical, historically harms on, on black and indigenous communities through the fact that itself as a tool is a Western view of land management. It's a colonial tool. And unfortunately, it's the tool that we have, and it's the tool that planning continues to propagate and proliferate. Unless we have a real radical shift in the way that we think about how we plan a city, I don't have the answer with respect to that that fulsome change. I welcome it as somebody that wants to change the profession and wants to think differently about uh, about cities and, and our contributions. But yeah, so so if you were to ask me like two years ago whether or not to be working in zoning bio, I'd probably say absolutely not. But I started to see how through this work, how how zoning has played a, a major role, not only in Edmonton, but across Canada, across the world. And, and so this was a great listening and learning opportunity for myself. So yeah, so that kind of just is the, the intro, but sort of now it was, well, how do we do this? <laughs> we haven't done this before. Um, you know, what does this look like? And so I would say that arguably, you know, the city of Edmonton has tried to make changes to its zoning bylaw. Um, you know, IDEA has pushed for a lot of changes uh, and for regulatory reform on the housing front. You know, we've seen how Edmonton has followed suit with like Minneapolis uh, and their decision to abolish single family only zoning. And, and, and Edmonton did that back in, I want to say December 2018. Uh, as yeah, was that, was that, yeah. Okay, perfect. Uh, and that was part of it was part of the info roadmap. And of course, we've just recently, over the past year, removed parking minimums to you know to support greater affordability. And we've also um, made supportive housing um, permitted across the city, right? And those were big changes that are being heralded across the country. And and it's kind of like if Edmonton could do it, like why can't our city, right? And and so. What's really cool about this work and, and this moment is that the the whole zoning bylaw itself is being rewritten from top to bottom. I've been told that if you print the electronic copy of the zoning bylaw, it'd be about 1500 pages. And so right there is like an accessibility issue. Like who's really gonna read through 1500 pages? Um, who's gonna cross-reference? Who's gonna make sure that, you know, they're, they're, crotting, they're crossing their their eyes and they're they're dotting their eyes and flashing their teeth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also just the fact that it's written in a legal way, right? Like it, there's a lot of technical jargon and it's and it's hard for 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 most people to be able to interpret it. And not, let alone even planners. Like I hear from planners all the time that they don't understand, you know, the the tool that they themselves have created. So now we get to take all those piecemeal amendments that we've made that you know certainly consider equity, consider access to the city and your right to the city now it's now it's like okay we can actually be intentional we can be explicit and say that equity is actually centering the whole rewrite of the bylaw um and and that was the decision of the of our leadership and so it i i wasn't involved in that but it was uh you know really championed by um stephanie mccabe who is our deputy city manager for urban planning and economy uh, and our director, uh, Olivia Ballone, who has been with the city for, for quite some time and sort of worked through the info roadmap. So those two really said, we need to make this happen. We don't necessarily know how that might look, but, you know, maybe this could be sort of a collaborative effort. So they brought me in and, you know, I started to think about like, what, what could we do to build this? So 
um, you know, first of all, I started to think about well, who is impacted by zoning? So who are the who are the who are those who are impacted? So it's community, it's residents, it's builders, um, it's really everyone in Edmonton. And also thinking about well, who are sort of the users of whatever we create? You know, it's the planners themselves, right? So when thinking about the project design, I started to think about yeah, who are the users of the toolkit? Who are the people that are impacted? How do I sort of leverage their voices and hear from them? Um, in such a short period of time, because we also had to create this thing from September 2020 and have it done by the end of that year, because the zoning file of renewal initiative um, was about to embark in writing their regulations in January. So it, it was a bit of a compressed timeline where you couldn't really think sequentially. Everything had to sort of be done all at the same time. So I remember uh, get you reaching out and letting me know that you had this really compressed timeline that you're starting the project in September. Uh, you're going to be wrapping up by the end of the year and uh, working with the city. Often the timelines are a little bit longer than that. So uh, I honestly thought that the project would end up having more time than it did. Uh, but <laughs> I'm grateful that it didn't because what came out of it was fantastic. And when you first reach out, there was a story that popped into my mind right away when the city of Edmonton was talking about privacy and rooftop patios and um, the fact that there would need to be screening on the rooftop patios. And there was this whole conversation around how high should it be? Should it be three feet, four feet, uh, six feet, what is it? And so I believe, and Ryan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, we ended up at five feet. This six. Six, perfect, yeah. exactly, that's all. Um, <laughs> six is perfect because it was the average eye height for uh, Western males, <laughs> and I was, livid I was so mad and I went to council and I tried the nicest way to not say what I wanted to say was this is racist come on let's let's figure out the average person in the world is not that tall what are we doing we're just taking away views for everyone uh, <laughs> yeah. and and I didn't have the resource or a tool to be able to make that argument at the time and so here we are with privacy regulations that don't work for the majority of Edmontonians uh, and it was rooted in the space where we didn't have that that tool. And so, yeah, now we're here. We have the toolkit. And I want it to be used every time, every time we create new regulations. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I, we, I mean, certainly we hope that, um, and I think we can expect and anticipate that not only administration will use it, but um, builders, developers, when they're doing their due diligence, I, I expect that community members will do it too to, to see the impact of those um, on their communities, uh, those types of projects on their communities. Yeah, Jason, that is, it, I think it's really exciting that administration, the building community, uh, average community members who literally use the space in our cities every day will be able to not only use the toolkit, but for, learn from it. Um, one of the amazing outcomes that I find that are in the, that's in the toolkit is there's a library and a resource. But before we get into the outcomes, uh, can you explain to me, because uh, I know a little bit about the process, but I don't know if Ryan knows enough about the process. Can you explain to me how the toolkit was created? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question. Um, so we first started off by trying to understand, you know, what equity means for the zoning file of renewal project. And so um, for us, equity um, is not a checkmark or a checkbox that could be checkmarked. It's an ongoing process of 
um, listening, learning, internal reflection, monitoring, and evaluation. And so we felt it was necessary for, to, for us to be able to create some type of tool um, that the planners can use as they write regulations, but also, you know, we know that even after the zoning bylaw is adopted um, in in 2022, that you know, there still might be some residual impacts of zoning over time, and so we want the tool to live on even past the zoning bylaw renewal initiative. It's going to be an ongoing practice and a tool that the team will need to use. So with that said, uh, we sort of centered three different goals as part of building the toolkit. The first goal was that we wanted the toolkit to offer specific or actionable direction and guidance to the planners um, as they write regulations. Uh, the second goal is that, you know, um, as just as much as the deliverable is is important. We also saw the process in building the toolkit as equally important because that was an opportunity for planners to consider their own sets of privilege, but also to consider concepts of equity and diversity and inclusion um, in, in the process of building the toolkit. And finally, the third goal is all about offsetting the disproportionate impacts felt by certain segments of the population. So we chose the word offset fairly intentionally. Uh, and I think I alluded to this before uh, or earlier on is that, you know, zoning itself, um, while its intention, you know, after the industrial revolution was to um, separate uses that were incompatible for the, the greater good and, and to protect the welfare of, of residents and citizens, we've noticed that over time it's led to segregation of people based on a whole variety of identity factors. So with those three goals in mind, the big question for the team was how do we create this GBA plus an equity toolkit, something that really um, isn't seen across Canada. We're really, we're sort of creating something new uh, and setting a bit of a precedent. And so um, when we were designing this, we started to think about, well, who's gonna use the toolkit? That's gonna be the planners and you know who will be impacted by the toolkit. That would be Edmontonian. So when we thought about like just our phases of the project uh, and designing this toolkit, the first phase was all about research and reflection. So we partnered with the University of Alberta to get some uh, an academic lens to this. So looking at um, best practices when it comes to literature on equity, human rights and zoning. Um, and in that academic research, um, Dr. Sandy Bagrall in the University of Alberta looked at 55 different cities and their zoning codes and their municipal development plans, looking at how equity is defined and how a municipality can address it and also populating some data and case law that we could use for our toolkit. We also did a series of community conversations back in November of last year, where we amplified and, and heeded the voices of those from marginalized communities, people who really are not um, typically, you know, at planning and zoning conversations. So um, people that, uh, you know, are, are generally, you know, don't see themselves as, as, as zoning experts. So we ended up having about three hour conversations with, you know, folks with varying gender and sexual identities, folks from black uh, indigenous people of color communities. Um, and we use that as an opportunity to just listen, to hear um, the different stories of experiences um, that they, 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 they have encountered with the built environment and using that as a moment to sort of identify how those experiences connect to zoning or they might connect to a district plan or to the city plan. 
So um, we use those conversations to build the toolkit. And then we also ask the planners themselves. I think we we have this notion that just because we, we all graduate from planning school that we're homogenous in our, in our perspectives around equity. And so we, we ended up having a, a bit of a truth-telling sort of conversation about what does equity mean for the planner themselves, the people that have agency in how they write a regulation. And that was really powerful because we heard from them that, you know, there's a lot of information that they lack, a lot of insights that they wish they were able to glean and, and listen to. Um, and that really helped us build out the structure of the toolkit, which um, the structure of the toolkit identifies, will help the planner um, locate sort of the inequities. So and in the context of zoning, we've identified two different types of inequities. The first one being communication barriers. So that's how zoning is written, how it's accessed, how it's presented. And some of those barriers um, could be the fact that it's written in English, the fact that it's found primarily online, and the fact that it's written in a, a very technical, um, legal, jargony type of way. The other social inequity that the toolkit will help a planner um, identify our historical negative externalities. Those are barriers or withheld benefits to communities based on how a zoning or regulation or suite of regulations have been implemented over time. An example of that um, it would be single family zoning and how over time, you know, that's led to you know, one predominant housing form, and it's locked out different housing typologies, um, and 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 by virtue of that, also locked out different types of community members based on a whole variety of identity factors. The toolkit itself also says that you know it's it's important to identify those barriers and those inequities, but that those barriers and and inequities are experienced differently based on um, uh, your identity factors. So intersectionality is a is a huge priority of the toolkit and it's helping the planner sort of think through the different lenses right so you know based on age race gender sexual identity um, education income and then lastly the toolkit structure says that it's not just important to create barrier to identify the barriers and to think about intersectionality that it's equally important to think about equity measures so how are we going to address those barriers or those inequities so the toolkit provides the planner with um, information on how to address those communication barriers and examples locally and nationally on regulations that have been able to address those historical negative externalities. And all of this information, the process, the how, like the how can be found on edmonton.ca slash zoning bylaw renewal. Um, and it's, it's being actively applied right now by the planners. So the toolkit, um, just like every other, you know, policy, it, it's, it isn't really a huge departure from how policy is written. It's thinking about, you know, the, the issues, thinking about the opportunities. But now, now that we've sort of chrono chronologically identified the stages of writing a regulation, we've been able to create tools that can help the planner throughout that entire process. Um, and one of the more shiny tools is this library of historical negative externalities and, 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 and equity regulations. And basically, let's say Mariah, she was going to write a residential zone. You now can go to this tool, you know, filter based on residential land use. And now it's going to populate all of these different types of inequities that we've been able to source with our own research, as well as that oral history from those community conversations, as well as the research from the University of Alberta. And, and, and one step further, it's, it's, it's now presenting you those inequities 
But now it's up to you to sort of say as a planner, how am I going to address it? So um, it, it's not a silver bullet, it's more of a thinking tool and it's putting the agency back onto the planner saying, you have the ability to write a regulation that can address inequity. And so what direction are you going to go, go in? Um, and there's also like a legal um, lens to this as well. So we've engaged our lawyers on how we might substantively um, address equity in a legal tool like zoning. And so, um, and so there's a series of questions from that sort of take a look at human rights and, and uh, charter rights lens. Um, so we want to make sure that the zoning itself isn't discriminating um, against um, pro legally protected grounds. So things like your gender, your your ethnicity, um, your sexual identity, and, and there are cases that have been um, that that provide that um, that rationale for for those purposes. And thankfully, you know, our zoning bylaw right now isn't discriminating on those grounds, and so even outside those human rights and charter rights lenses, there are you know, other equity concerns that then become political in nature, right? And, and there's a series of trade-offs that need to be considered. So you know, are we as a city and as a community okay with um, homelessness? How do we address that? You know, how do we address climate change? And what more can we do from a zoning perspective to address that? And finally, I just want to address the, the University of Alberta's research. So they actually helped provide a really interesting lens on how we might define equity in the context of municipal action. Um, and so that's also found on our website too. And that, that's really been helpful for me as well because it's setting expectations of the limitations of zoning too. And so, um, you know, the, the research highlights how there are four different ways in which we, a municipality can address equity. The first one being distributional equity. So that relates to how resources and investments are provided to different areas of the city. There's recognitional equity. So that's how we address or identify different people's experiences um, within the city. Um, an example of that would be the fact that we provide treaty land acknowledgements at, you know, at the start of every council meeting. Procedural equity relates to our processes you know, is it clear? Can people participate? Public hearing might be an example of procedural equity. And then finally, regulatory equity is sort of all of the different um, statutory plans and zoning and, 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 and um, how can a zoning bylaw address equity? And the reason why I bring up these four definitions is to really make clear that, you know, while the zoning bylaw is one tool to address equity, it's really gonna require sort of a multifaceted and more holistic approach to being able to address equity from a as a as a citywide sort of endeavor. Yeah, well, I think one thing, um, Jason, that that you talked about was the university's input. I think is so valuable because often, uh, as planners, as uh, as citizens, as politicians, we're looking for the silver bullet uh, to help us fix things, help us get us to the next stage, and. You know, equity is a harder conversation than a silver bullet. It, it's a long process. It's a journey. And one thing I saw that came out of that that was really amazing and I think will change the foundation of how we build cities is right now we, in zoning, we really look at the impact a new project or, or a new development has on the, the surrounding areas. But what we don't look at is what kind of equal access we're giving to people. And so the conversations that I know um, took place led to the definition of equity, and I wrote it down when I was doing my research, 
that every resident has equal access to live, work, play, while accounting for the impact of use on the adjoining uh, on the adjoining properties, which before that's not how we looked at things. And so while we're recreating our zoning bylaw, which is our, our toolkit of how we build everything, um, having that balanced conversation will help us build a more equitable city. Um, so that, that's what's gotten me really jazzed <laughs> about <laughs> how we've gotten here. Yeah, uh, I know. Totally. I know Ryan. Yesterday, when you and I were doing a bit of a, a debrief before this conversation, you you did a deep dive into this, and you saw some examples of how you reviewed it. Uh, and I'd love if you could share a bit about that. Yeah, honestly, Jason, I'm I'm glad that you talked about the reflection piece as a key component because I yeah I spent the weekend reading through the the entire story document toolkit or the toolkit story document and I found myself doing two things. The first was well, gosh, realizing how much privilege that I as a cisgendered white male have, and how really comfortable the world is for someone like me without even really being aware of it, including apparently privacy screen heights and that kind of thing. So um, I'm also a planner, so it, it kind of hits home. It was written for planners, um, but I, I was really starting to think about specific examples that would, um, uh, I don't want to say fail this toolkit, but that the toolkit would be used against. And, and the one that I keep coming back to is the design of our roadways. Um, you know, we have uh, in our design and construction standards, which, you know, just got redone and republished in March. Um, maybe they could have used this toolkit a little bit. So, I mean, the majority of our uh, standardized roadway designs include half of the entire right of way being dedicated towards the vehicle. Um, and the other half is for everything else. You assume it's for people, but it's not. It's for, you know, infrastructure and landscaping and people. And the people end up getting shrunk down into into some really minor spaces and it, it goes even beyond that you know the, the pedestrian crossings are only at intersections or they're very controlled the vehicle gets priority kind of everywhere uh repair of roadways takes priority and in circumstances where there's sidewalks or bike lanes the hoarding for all the materials and the construction equipment that uh, are needed for that roadway construction or repair they're in the sidewalks or in the other parts of the right-of-way so we really prioritize vehicles. Is that uh, a, is that a reasonable example of uh, um, of something that would go through the equity toolkit? And um, maybe there's other specific examples that you could provide. Yeah, no, and I, I thought that was a really astute observation. Glad that you're reading the document, and I really liked your point about how you had sort of that moment of of realization and, and introspection because it was scary, right? But also <laughs> really great that you're acknowledging it because I think that we have this sort of this complex where we feel like we know all the answers as planners, right? And and really this work is trying to shine a light that perhaps we don't, you know, perhaps we, the way that we're planning and designing should be challenged and maybe we need to be critical and, and self-aware about, about that. And it's not to sort of vilify our past work either because, you know, I think 30 years from now, you know, there, 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 this, there will be this similar conversation, right? Potentially another podcast or whatever you know the multimedia is, sort of questioning some of the, some of our, of our thought processes. But it, it really is about sort of 
challenging and inviting the planners who are writing the bylaws just to give this some thought, to think through those different perspectives. And, and what one planner said is really just putting yourself in the shoes of others. Um, and I do think that we think about that, but now here's a real opportunity to document that process. So the compass, um, so there's the toolkit, and then we've created what we're calling a compass, which is really just a worksheet for the planners to be able to document their process as they sort of input the data and think about those different perspectives, think about the different, as, you, as they do their analysis too. Um, and we called it the word compass, you know, purposely in that so similarly to a compass that can sort of tell you, you know, northeast, southwest, it's still up to the person to sort of decide which direction they go. And so for the, the toolkit and for the zoning pilot team, the question is, you know, if, if the compass is pointing you towards equity, how far to, to equity do you go? And, and again, equity um, and the zoning, you know, it's, there's that dual legacy of, of it being an exclusionary tool. So, you know, how far can we offset and what are some of the further improvements can we make? So I just wanted to make a note that I think it's great that you, you've put in the work to sort of consider those types of privileges and, and how you might adopt that in your own practice. The second question about, you know, adaptability. So how do we, how do we, you know, fan this across the city corporation? I think is a, a really important question. And so, yeah, you're right in that the way that we've written it and the tools themselves really are specific and pretty niche, I think, for the zoning bylaw. So we have examples of inequities that really relate to land use um, and examples of regulations that can address those inequities, again, related to land use. But, you know, the process itself and how we designed it and sort of the functionality of the tool and, and sort of the filtering of those inequities can theoretically be, you know, replicated across the city corporation. And, and we've already done a lot of great work of fanning this out. You know, people are starting to hear about it even within the city and out, even outside the city. So, you know, we've already shared it with, um, you know, our planning coordination team, heritage planning, um, the safe city interdepartmental team, our law branches using it, um, district planning folks, as, as well as the River Valley Planning Modernization Project. So, there are, are departments at the city who are thinking about this and, 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 you know, I think our team would be open to, and that's kind of like the next phase, like after we finish the zoning follow, but, you know, how do we adapt like the libraries to be more specific to the inequities faced on like a public road of way as like your example, you know, how do we, how do we add that to the library and what are some measures that can address those types of issues? Um, and, but also the other thing is that we are fanning this across the country too. Like we have more than eight cities who are applying it to their own zoning codes. So the city of Lethbridge, Ottawa, St. Albert, uh, Vancouver, Victoria, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, and even the government of Canada's procurement and public services department. So I think the other thing that we've acknowledged um, is that the work that we're doing here is cutting edge and precedent setting. And so that is, equally exciting but also nerve-wracking right it, it's it's this like how do we then meet the expectation that we're setting for ourselves like this ambitious goal for ourselves um and we also recognize too that whatever we do here in Win in sorry not winnipeg <laughs> whatever we do here <laughs> in edmonton also becomes the precedent for other cities right and so we had a conversation with the city and they said they said, um, stop making all these big changes. Like you're, you're feeling, you know, you're lighting a fire under our butts, right? To, to get moving on some of these <laughs> concerns. And I just got an email from the city of Ottawa saying that they, you know, why 
replicate the tool when you know you already have it in that process and structure so everything that we've created is open source it's public um, we want people to see it um, the libraries themselves can be accessed by the public so they can understand what imp what data we're considering uh, what inputs are we are we thinking through as we do our analysis um, and even the libraries themselves, because we call them a library on purpose, because, you know, quite frankly, we're not going to be able to capture all the inequities um, that are created as a result of land use. So there's actually a portion of the library where we ask people to identify those types of experiences or inequities that they believe to be caused by zoning. Um, we probably think that mostly planners will sort of populate that the, the libraries, but we invite others to share their experiences too. They're, they're legitimate, um, they are felt by people. And then there's a process on our end to sort of sort through that in terms of saturation and trying to figure out, you know, what are the gateways to sort of include that data? But intrinsic in all of this is really this idea of open source and, and having everyone sort of use it, apply it. And then as people continue to use it, we'll need to, yeah, monitor and just measure how it's working. We've made some adjustments here and there to make it more user friendly and and for the planners to use. Um, and so it's an ongoing it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing activity that we are going to continue to prioritize. It's very impressive for something that you admitted to creating in three months. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how far it's already reached. Does it follow um, any national um, guidelines or toolkits of similar? Um, that would be similar to this, or is this kind of the first of its kind? Yeah, from from my own sort of environmental scan, I, I do believe it's sort of at the first of its kind. Um, I know that the Canadian Institute of Planners has a, they have a policy on like indigenous reconciliation and planning practice, but there isn't really a document on equity. And I know that they're working on um, what they're calling a equity, diversity, inclusion roadmap. So how their organization and their practice and the policies can consider equity, diversity, inclusion, but there really is no real like Canadian um, orientation or gaze towards equity in, in terms of a formal policy document. I know that I, when I was trying to figure out what this could look like and how we might do it, I did look at the American Planning Association and and they actually have a document called um, Planning for Equity. And so that served as a bit of like an inspiration point for me. They actually have a statement as an organization about how planning practice can orient themselves towards equity and diversity issues. It's kind of analogous to how we think about like the public interest or like the public good. Um, but I think that um, APA or the American Planning Association kind of called it out and spelled it out more explicitly that equity is intrinsic to our work. And this is, my, this is how we might do it. They don't have a toolkit like ours, but that sort of served as a bit of inspiration. And yeah, so I think that our work in Edmonton, of all places, is becoming, you know, the the precedent setter in terms of this conversation. And we're really excited to see how it might be applied throughout different, you know, city contexts as well as political contexts. Um, and yeah, we would like to see it grow because that library itself, like it, it's not just Edmonton examples. So, you know, we'd like to see other examples so that, you know, even our research um, portion of the work that we do as planners could be even easier now. And that even makes it more accessible for the public to see how we how we think through and, and how we write policy. Um, so it's really exciting. And uh, I see just more growth and, and room for this to to expand. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because it does seem um, 
like a very good one-stop shop. And we've had all these kind of pieces emerge um, related to equity. So I, I think of things like universal design, um, aging in place was another really good one. We've, uh, like you mentioned, we've been including land acknowledgements everywhere. So we've been doing a little bit piecemeal. This kind of wraps it all up in a bow. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and those are really great. Those are really great documents too. And I think that those ones really speak to sort of the larger overarching policy, but there hasn't been something that really has turned its attention to zoning. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and how zoning and like the regulations that we write have those impacts. So now we just have like, and I hate to say it, but just like another tool, like in our planning toolbox. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I like your idea of how do we adapt it now within other areas or other sort of aligned disciplines. Um, and certainly that is something that we're going to try to do. Well, I hope as it, it grows and gets adapted by other areas within Edmonton and other area, areas within the country, that they continue having those community conversations touching uh, base with those who really feel the effects of, of what we're trying to change, because I'm sure you had the ability to hear all those conversations, but that must have been so impactful to help create what we have today. Yeah, yeah. November was a really intense month of listening, and uh, there were three-hour conversations with 23 community members. Um, it doesn't seem like a lot of folks, but like three-hour conversations for like just one month for 23 people is pretty significant. Um, I, you know, I felt like it was like just a huge burden to bear in terms of just like the the magnitude of the stories shared were so powerful. And so it wasn't lost to me that it was important to then steward and sort of steer and incorporate that feedback in a meaningful way. And we, and, and so that was a really good opportunity to actually co-draft like our community conversation summary together uh, and as you read the document, just sort of, I hope, I hope is, is really hear their voices as you read the document. Um, we, we certainly didn't try to censor any of the quotes. A lot of them are very powerful. Um, and um, I hope serve as a guide for uh, our team and other planners in the future to sort of give that a read and, and get a bit of a primer on some of the issues, like those real tangible, um, you know, neighbor to neighbor community experiences that perhaps we might be making assumptions about, or we hadn't, you know, thought to ask that community member. Um, certainly, there's more to do, and and now that I'm on the zoning bilateral team, you know, full time, you know, that's gonna that's been one area of, of that I've been excited to advocate for and press uh, press forward on is is you know whose voices continue to be missing as we as we write the bylaw as we now enter the next phase of engagement. Um, where we will have a draft bylaw. So now everything's been conceptual. We're writing the bylaw, but you know how well did everything actually work, and how did that translate into a regulation? Um, that's that's kind of the missing piece, and kind of the exciting piece is mm -hmm. measuring you know that impact. Yeah, well, as a frequent flyer myself of helping change <laughs> the zoning bylaw and advocate for its growth, I am so excited to have more voices at the table because. Uh, my lived experience is the same as everyone else in our city uh, or the, the people that I help represent. Um, and so to have that ability to bring other people to the table, I, I'm just so jazzed. <laughs> I can't wait to meet them all. Yeah. I mean, and you obviously had a huge role to play in the GBA Plus and Equity Toolkit development, but also, you know, you drove that conversation recently at, at a public hearing. And so that's a really good example of trying to how that equity conversation can really change, you know, change things. 
yeah, it was exciting to see the ability to use that toolkit uh, to look at a change that we were contemplating as a city that would really have set more a, a neighborhood into a single family zone, which is what we're trying to move away from as planning practices um, and having that those trade-off conversations around how do you deal with um, history and heritage and also equity and being more inclusive as communities and dynamic. So the conversation isn't open in that, in that chapter uh, of the project, but it allows for us to bring in this, this new toolkit and the compass to be more thoughtful and intentional. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a mirror. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I know, Jason, uh, I gave you a time frame and you're a very busy man, but we didn't get to talk about Winnipeg at all. And I, w I wanted to throw it back between you and Ryan uh, to talk about how the role of the planner can help shape cities like Winnipeg and Edmonton, because Ryan talked about our, our streets. Uh, and how we give so much of our streets to, to cars. And then we've also in the past talked about places like uh, Port of Germain that is exclusively for cars. And so many cities are now trying to make spaces for people and roads. How do you think that this toolkit can help us move forward those conversations? I could talk about Winnipeg forever, as you folks know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in Winnipeg. And I think that, you know, what's been really interesting is that I've I've worked in different environments where they there have been specific membership right like so i talked about the uwsa and there's membership for students and i worked at the downtown Winnipeg biz where the membership were, were business interests and i think that that was really both of those were really formative because um at the time you know it was really narrowly thinking about those different groups but as i work as a planner now it's thinking about who's missing you know whose voices haven't we heard from and i think that what the gba plus and equity toolkit really asks planners is is really to think about those voices that we haven't haven't heard from. Who do we need to amplify? Um, and some of the stats, like in planning practice, sort of articulate how I think that there was a research study done. Um, don't quote me on this, but I think there was like a, an average of 22% of planners sort of view themselves only as sort of technical experts, and so um, they don't really see themselves as folks who should be doing social slash advocacy planning. No, like their job is to sort through the data, look at the information, create a recommendation, right? And so there is a school of thought too, of like planning as being enmeshed or sort of in, at the intersection of power. And a lot of my research actually, you know, says that we should be diving right into power. We, we can't ignore those political contexts, the power that can either shape or disable the things that we'd like to see. Um, and so, I, you know, I would say that in Winnipeg, we, we need planners to see themselves as more than just technical experts so that I think that, you know, if that subtle change can help them, you know, understand that their work actually, you know, in, needs to involve perspectives of gender, race, class, ethnicity, sexuality, you know, na nation and, and, and disability. Um, and, and that really would help us then understand entitlement, privilege, and, and different experiences. So I think that generally, you know, we do, I do want to see the profession sort of change in that direction. And I know that there's been a lot of theorists and, and academics and practitioners who sort of adopt that advocacy planner type of hat. Um, and it's really stoking that conversation, um, you know, conveying a particular narrative of, of what our cities can become or what they currently are and what the future state is and leadership. It's, you know, playing a role in shaping a conversation 
you know, listening and learning and also recognizing that, yes, there are politicians who make decisions at the end of the day, but also being a leader, being able to provide politicians with all the right information that they need to make the best decision for the city that, they're, that, they, they, that they belong to. So is the best decision and that leadership only about, you know, providing like a business perspective or is it about bringing in all those different types of nuances that perhaps that counselor hadn't thought about? educating community members about their role and, and giving them the information so that there could be shared understanding on, on their part. Um, so that's kind of like how I see um, Edmonton actually being a leader on that front, you know, and that's one of the reasons, and we talked about this yesterday, but it's one of the reasons why I moved to Edmonton because I saw planners being leaders. And being a leader isn't just sort of shoving down like a policy down like, you know, someone's throat. It's it's being a leader in conveying information. It's about creating capacity. It's about ensuring that different voices are amplified um, and really creating that shared understanding so that at the end of the day, as a community, we've, we've said we've done our due diligence, that we've thought about all the different things that play a role. And then, then we could be okay with, you know, the ultimate decision. And, and so I think Edmonton's doing a lot of great, uh, has a lot of great strides on that front. And it was one of the reasons why I moved to Edmonton was that vocal sort of um, um, perspective. And you know, there's folks like Kaylin Anderson, who I met in Winnipeg, who talked for, for two minutes and it only took two minutes for me to, to be sold on, on the planning sort of culture in Edmonton and this idea that you can make something happen. Not to say that Winnipeg isn't that, but I do think Winnipeg can learn quite a bit from, from Edmonton's experience in that regard in terms of shaping a conversation, having a vision, planners and civil servants being leaders uh, and supporting political will, political will and political leaders listening and, and to the advice of their administration. Um, and also um, bringing in and creating a bigger web of different people to participate. So it's interesting what you said about Edmonton being like a, having a really vocal planning community and a large planning community. Yesterday, you, you kind of compared the planning departments um, between Winnipeg and Edmonton and Edmonton's is in the magnitude of nine or 10 times more um, <laughs> planners that are working here. And part of that, um, in my opinion anyways, is... Um, the boom time. So I moved here. I was living in Winnipeg. I lived there for 10 years. Um, I started my career out there. Um, I honestly never really thought I was going to move back to Edmonton, but I did because I found a job very easily that uh, paid me a lot more and was working on crazy projects because um, I started at the city and then, and then moved elsewhere. But um, it was really easy to find a job. And there's a lot of people like that. Jason, you came from Winnipeg, um, where the plant, even though you, like I alluded to at the start of this thing, you had uh, two of the best planning jobs that you could get in Winnipeg. You abandoned those and came here for reasons that you stated. But a lot of people, um, a lot of planners of the city of Edmonton aren't from Edmonton. We don't, we didn't have a planning school until just recently. Um, but everyone stayed. Everyone stayed um, for their own reasons and um, are now starting to kind of cultivate this um, this really interesting dialogue. Like you, you mentioned the uh, couple of changes, the GBA plus toolkit being the first of its kind in Canada, open option parking being the first of its kind in Canada, the zoning bylaw basically outlawing single family only zones being the first of its kind. There's lots of good that's coming out of here and it's in no small part to people like you, Jason, and people that came, planners that came from across the country that were trained elsewhere um, and then brought their ideas and their perspectives here. So I'm excited to see where it goes with the U of A now. Um, 
how involved are you still in the uh, in the university and the research that they're doing, Jason? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's a really good point that you make about like a university institution as as continuing the culture or creating that practice because you know I love Winnipeg and I'm I'm going to likely move back to Winnipeg at some point in my life because it's it's where home is. But I you know certainly as a prairie boy like I I love the work that's being done in Edmonton and I think there's a lot of great to be great things in Edmonton and so I see it as as home as well um but you know in Winnipeg the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture where you know we have a planning school within the Faculty of Architecture plays a strong role in keeping that talent the you know and also cultivating or nurturing some interesting ideas for the city so I would say Winnipeg is really like architecturally interesting um, there are a lot of creative minds, like a lot of our buildings are beautifully done. They're all done often locally from the people that graduate from that school. And I think that that is happening in Edmonton too, because now you have a planning school. So I, I like that point that you made, because when I think about my colleagues, there's a lot of people at the city of Edmonton who actually moved to Winnipeg to get their planning degree because there wasn't a planning school at the time. Like you know, right. folks like Michael Strong, Beth Sanders, you, like there, there was a lot of university manager, but grads. So I think that's a really good decision that the university and, and I, I don't necessarily know the entire story, but I think it was a group of city builders and planners from all over who said, no, we want to build in Edmonton where we can, where we can work on some interesting issues where we can plan. Um, and Certainly, that's why I moved to Edmonton is I was seeing that Edmonton is planning, you know, they're doing stuff, they're, they're making stuff happen. So in terms of like my relationship with the university, obviously, I am a student at the University of Alberta Planning School, do my PhD there, but we're also still connected to the University of Alberta through the GBA Plus and Equity Toolkit. They served as consultants um, and we leveraged some funding from the government of Canada through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. And so now it's all about knowledge translation, right? Because, you know, the biggest thing that we hear from most people is that academia can, can really feel pretty inaccessible, right? Like the information can be hard to access, um, the way that it's written um, can be difficult to decipher. So that was a big part of this too, was making sure that all of our documents can be understood and, and that people can access them. And so um, even though that the research is done, you know, we'll be working with Dr. Agarwal on knowledge translation and knowledge mobilization, trying to get the information in people's hands, being open to as many presentations, demonstrations of the tool. Um, and yeah, so it's not the end, you know, it's uh, although the project charter, you know, I know that a lot of city workers like live and die by the project charter, but it's like it is a, it is a cultural shift, you know, it right. needs to continue on even past the project charter. And I think we've done a lot of great sort of um, laying the foundation for that to happen. And, and so and it can't just be me, too. So, you know, I think one of the biggest things that um, happened recently that just put a smile on my face was like our, our lawyer who's on the zoning ballot team. You know, she often sends me little notes about how she was in a meeting and she had to point out something that was inequitable or the other day she said that um, some folks were they were seeing handicapped stalls and she was the first person to say no we should call those like accessible stalls and so I don't know like those little moments kind of it means that it's not just me and it can't just be me it has to be everybody else and so I'm starting to see that message really um, distill and and uh, percolate throughout the corporation and that and that brings a lot of excitement to me that's awesome yeah so before i let you go <laughs> we're doing <laughs> so 
something with everyone that we have on this this podcast is a call to action to our community, our Intel community, because I know when I look, when I watch uh, things like last week tonight, I love that there's something that I can action out and I, maybe that's just my personality. I hate hearing about things I can't do anything about. So give me a call to action, give the community a call to action of what we can do to move the conversation forward and move progress and implementation forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just want to give a big shout out to to both you and Ryan for convening this important conversation. I've had a blast getting to know both of you through this process and uh, eager to just continue working with you folks and ideas as we move forward uh, to building a great Edmonton. Um, I guess my call to action would be twofold. The first one is that equity isn't a buzzword. We know that there have been inequities in communities for decades, and this is the moment now to seize like an opportunity to uh, to create some reparations to address those historical historical externalities and issues that have been pervasive in our communities. So really, I think another you know call to action is ensuring that people see themselves in their city throughout the pages of our plans or policies or programs. We need to hear their stories. We need to amplify their voices. And we need to make sure that our planning efforts are more accessible and approachable. I know that this work is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be ambiguous at times. It's going to be challenging. But that's all the more reason for us to be relentless in that pursuit. I don't think you could have said it better in any way. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't want to lose the momentum, which is why I was like, we, Brian and I agreed. We were like, we have to have Jason on. This is so important for our city and for cities all over the country. Um, and to allow people to come to the table and bring their stories and for us to open up because I know in planning sometimes uh, it can be hard to bring in new voices. Uh, it's a new challenge. Change is hard uh, no matter what it is, whether it's changing the type of um, peanut butter you eat or changing the way we do zoning. Um, I, but I'm glad that we now have this to start the momentum of allowing more voices at the table and, and having those processes actually change uh, and addressing the issues. So thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, for anyone out there who's on Twitter, go follow Jason. He is an amazing follow. I feel like I learn something every week. It is so <laughs> lovely. <laughs> and he's got killer dance moves. So uh, it's either you're learning or you're learning how bad of a dancer you are. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Hey, friend. That was quite a conversation. Isn't Jason the best? Yeah, it's funny because we talked to him for almost an hour and 15 minutes. I think we're going to have to cut some of that episode out, and we did. There needs to be a second conversation with him. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. He, we didn't even get into a lot of his previous work that I think is really interesting around missing middle and, and stuff like that. So um, the best part about this conversation is that about, I don't know, what was it? 45 minutes to an hour in, he sent us a private message in the chat box saying, I can do this all night if we need to keep going, keep asking questions, keep talking. He had the energy of... I'm not even sure. He had enough energy to keep going and keep talking about everything. It's unbelievable. Yeah, anytime that him and I connect on different like city building issues in the past, I always try and make it for the end of the day because I love chatting with him. <laughs> <laughs> He's so funny. He's so smart. 
I'm like, yeah, totally. You want to talk at four? I'm down to talk at four. You want to talk at five? Like, we can yeah. let's go drinks. <laughs> exactly. And I, I do like that too. He was very casual. Um, he was very, I like how honest he is, um, just kind of always and uh, kind of transparent about everything. He doesn't pull punches and he definitely speaks his mind. And I really like that about him. So that's, it, that's why he was a really good guest, I think, today. Um, fact check. We have, we have a few things to fact check, but, um, not a lot that we got wrong, which I'm happy to announce. So the first thing is we said December, 2018 was when the changes to the zoning bylaw came for single family only, only zones. So removing all single family only zones from the zoning bylaw. And we said that very confidently. And at the time I remember going, I'm not that confident in my ability to remember dates like that, um, let alone specific policy dates. But we looked it up to make sure, and my God, Mariah, we're right. December 10th, 2018 is when they made those changes to the zoning bylaw. Yeah, it was a nice little holiday gift to the city. <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas and all that. So the second thing is that uh, Jason mentioned the zoning bylaw, how big or how long it would be if you printed it out. Uh, we said 1,500 pages if you printed it all out, and we should quantify that for interest's sake. Um, it's actually 828 pages. Now, that's with all without all of the appendices. Um so with those, and then if you print it off single-sided, we'll say we're right again. 1,500 pages printed off single-sided, right? 100%. The, one of my favorite stories is when I was at an urban planning committee probably around 2018, and we were talking about the need to do a renewal for the zoning bylaw. City administration printed off one copy and brought it to show council what it actually looked like so that they could visualize what development officers have to go through, what community has to go through, what industry has to go through while they're trying to build in the city. Can you, can you imagine like, well, you deal with it all the time. You're trying to help with a project and you're trying to cross-reference all these things and get it right and work within the rules. Of course it's impossible. So I'm so glad that we're in the space where we're renewing it. Uh, and it won't be 800 pages front and back or 1,600 pages single-sided. That is crazy. I mean, I, at first, I'm a little bit disappointed in the number of trees that were killed for that. But that is such a visual statement. And it helped, definitely, probably that discussion and getting funding for moving the project ahead, hey? Yeah, it was very powerful. I think I don't think anyone had really looked and seen how complicated it really is and that's why we need things like the GBA plus and equity toolkit so that we don't get back to that space where we've got an 800 page rule book. That's insane. That's not, it's not easy for anyone to use, even if you are a technical expert. So we're moving forward. Yeah. I'm currently trying to read a book. That's like a thousand pages. It's the longest book I will ever read in my life. And it is a slog. I can't even like bring myself, I, I think I'm a third of the way through and I'm like, oh my God, just give me some pictures or something. Like, let me skip ahead a little bit here. So 1500 pages is a lot. And yeah, like you mentioned um, about how industry uses it, I guess I'm industry, your kind of industry as well, but how differently we use it. I, I joke about it all the time. It's kind of a double-edged sword that we have this really robust zoning bylaw because um, 
the complexity of it means that I get to help people interpret it. Um, the other side of that is if it wasn't for idea, I wouldn't stay as, as up to date on the changes that happen as I do with, you know, the newsletter that goes out and just kind of generally talking to you and other people and idea. I, I, I learned that, but very quickly you can get in a headspace where you think you remember something or you think, you know, something in the bylaw and then look, and it's changed because they're making administrative changes all the time all the time. So it's only getting longer. It's only getting more complex all the time. So yeah, finding stuff quickly and being able to interpret things. That's what I think my strength is, but it's sometimes very difficult to keep up. Oh, it's totally your strength. My job is to change the zoning bylaw and make it easier. <laughs> you keep me in check to make sure I know what I'm talking about. I've made many phone calls to you over the years to make sure with this setback or whatever this floor error ratio uh and you know it off by heart pretty much which is like it amazes me so thanks for all the help over the years <laughs> yeah not a problem but i like i said i think that is a dangerous game sometimes because i think i know more than i actually do with how much it changes but um and that's the other thing is a lot is open to interpretation and there's like um some I think Jason mentioned it as well. There's lots of legalese in there. It sounds legalese, like it's planning interpretations. It should be a little bit more fluffy and high level and that type of thing. But it's, you know, shall be this and may be this under very specific circumstances that may or may not apply. Like it's, it's crazy. It drives people to hire people like me just to read it, which is a little bit outrageous. So that's why I'm happy that we had Jason on and I'm happy that they had this equity toolkit. Um, uh, coming because you know the language that they use although i'll probably be out of a job is really important to you know raise the overall <laughs> level of understanding of this really important document even if they take an 800 page toolkit or zoning bylaw and they make it 300 pages or 400 pages because like it's a whole city document you can't shrink it too much yeah um ever people will still need you like all different complexity of projects. Edmonton is only building cooler and cool projects by the day and people are getting into the industry. So don't worry to all the planners out there. I am sure people will need you around. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is another thing that I wanted to clarify. So we talked a little bit about the privacy screening and when that, those changes came into effect. And I said it was racist. Uh, and yeah, it is. Um, we looked at the average uh, white North American man for eyesight, and that's what we use as a qualifier. Uh, but it's also sexist because that takes out women's perspectives too. So uh, right. the average height for people in general is not the same as the average height for um, a Canadian North American white man. So I'm so glad that we're moving away from just um, pulling out random uh, facts and trying to quantify things because it's hard. It's hard to make those decisions, but now we have the toolkit to help make smarter decisions and more accurate yeah. decisions. I, I actually wanted to ask you about that because you said you ran to council to complain about the privacy screening height and you said some things. I want to ask you what you said. So every time there's a change, um, whether I'm pushing it or it's it's happening because other people are pushing it, uh, I go and speak to urban planning committee and council about the effects that it'll have on the infill community. So I went and talked about how this is, you know, a new regulation, there needs to be education around it. Um, it's best if we put a little bit of lag into a new bylaw because then people can 
get uh, like when it's enacted the next day there's already projects in the queue people don't know about the change like newsletter comes out once a week but there's lots of people who <laughs> read it don't read it outside the community so i talked about that and then i tried to dance around the issue of this is you know not an equitable way to move forward uh and when that change was, was happening i didn't have the resources to, to talk about this and the climate of how we talked about social issues wasn't it wasn't what it is now so um, i think that's one of the good things that came out of 2020 is we're having these bigger conversations so yeah the way i would frame the conversation now would be much different than when i did <laughs> yeah, but not as interesting as what you probably said back then. So yeah, it's it it that was a very important part of the conversation for sure. So yeah, I think that's it for fact checks for the week. Um, like I said, we're definitely going to have Jason on again to talk about some other things and probably follow up about the implementation of this equity toolkit because that's you know very important and and I'm very interested to see how that comes, especially as it relates to zoning bylaw renewal. Um, and yeah, otherwise I'll just be uh, you know posting my uh, resume online and uh, talking about getting me a new job because they've done all their work and made things super easy through the zoning bylaws. So, yeah. Oh, there will be a lot of changes. So you'll have to help people through it. So yeah. you got at least a couple of years after the renewal. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Well, okay. thanks so much to everyone for listening in today. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ryan. Yeah, see you, Ryan.